this most difficult of chapters in the book of Matthew, known as the Olivet Discourse. We will pray and ask God by His Spirit to help us, and then we'll get to work. So if you would, let's just ask for God's help. Father, we just come to you this morning, and we, we beseech you, Father, not because there's anything in us deserving, but because of the righteousness your Son gives to us. On behalf of Christ, on the basis of what he did on the cross, we ask, Lord, that your Spirit would come to us, that you would, through your Spirit, open our minds to understand exactly what it is that your Son is teaching us in this text. We pray, Father, your Spirit would just illuminate and shine on the passage before us this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the Christian life, there are two things that will remain true from here until the day that you die or until the day that the Lord comes back, whichever event happens first. Um, The first thing that you will always, always hear and experience all throughout your life is there will be prophets who will predict that the end of the world has happened, that it is happening, that the rapture is about to take place. You will hear that forever. You will always hear that. The second thing that you will always hear from now until the end of time, from now until the end of the world, is you will equally hear to the other side of the spectrum another false prophet who will say, everything's fine, everything's great, there will be no disaster, there will be no destruction, you can have a prosperous and happy life right now, and there's nothing to fear. Both extremes do not match up with what Jesus is saying to us here in Matthew chapter 24. Give you two examples. First, Harold Camping. Anybody here ever heard of Harold Camping? Okay, you, okay, good, good. So give you a couple of quotes. Harold Camping, the founder of the Family uh, Radio Network, said, and this is a quote from 1994. This is going way back here. Most of you are probably more familiar with his 2011 predictions, but going all the way back to 1994, Harold Camping, through his radio network, made the statement, you know, offered forth the ultimatum, if you were ever wanting to get saved, you better do it today, because on September the 6th, 1994, when that day arrives, no one else can be saved. The end has come. We will be raptured. Well, you would think that on September the 7th, 1994, when no one was raptured, that Harold Camping would have learned his lesson. But no. You see, there's a mathematical equation, and if we just keep working the numbers, eventually we discover our mistake, which is what led him to, in throughout 2008, 2009, 2010, to offer this statement. And now, um, give you a little bit of context, after having given his elaborate explanation of his mathematical formula, he makes this statement. And now... We have no further option. Having seen this, we can't say maybe or it's possible or it looks very probable. No way. We have to say that this is what the Bible teaches. This is the fact. May 21st, 2011 is the day of the rapture. It is the day that judgment day comes. Now, he did this back in 94. And he did it again in May 21st, 2011. I teased with my wife. He's, uh, he was very, very popular in Dallas. And I, I teased with my wife that what I wanted to do is put a lawnmower in my front yard and leave it running and maybe throw some clothes on the ground behind it and just see what my neighbors would say, you know, <laughs> when uh, that day rolled around. 
Anyway, um, <laughs> anyway, on uh, let's see, what was the day here? On May, on the next day, May twenty second. Guess what? We're all still here. We're all still here. No grand surprise. You all are aware this this didn't come to happen. Judgment Day didn't come. The rapture didn't happen. None of it came true. But of course, the mathematical formula. It's always about the mathematical formula. So he went back and he reconsidered his numbers and he discovered there was a an adding mistake or a dividing mistake of some form. And uh, it was all just arithmetic. And he came back that very same year and he said, I made a mistake. We must realize that it is now October 21st, 2011. That will be the final day of this earth's existence. Uh, you guys are all laughing. I want you to know that I am aware of many, many Christians, particularly in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex area, who took out insurance on their animals because they were convinced by this man that they would be raptured off of the earth and their poor animals would be left behind. And they entered into financial agreements with various individuals who swore that they weren't believers that, to take care of their animals after they left. Entered into rather expensive contracts. And yet, on October the 22nd, we discovered that Harold Camping was wrong. So you will, throughout the course of your life, always hear these prognostications. And yet Jesus is very clear in Matthew chapter 24, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son, only the Father above. To the opposite end of the spectrum, you will also hear promises of delight. You will always encounter individuals who will say, we have plenty of time on this earth, there's no reason to fear, you can go out, you can be rich, you can be prosperous, you can make lots of money, and in fact, that's exactly what God wants for your life. He wants nothing more than for you to be healthy, wealthy, happy, and wise. Perhaps the poster boy for this movement is an individual, a Texas fellow, they're, they're both actually from Texas, Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen, in his book, Your Best Life Now, makes a couple of statements, I'll just recount them for you. Page 35, God wants to give you your own house and he has a big dream for your life and he wants you to have the best life you can possibly have right now. Page 41, perhaps you find yourself searching for a parking spot in a crowded parking lot. Perhaps you're at Walmart and you can't find anywhere to park. Say to the Father, I thank you, Father, for leading me and guiding me. Your favor, I believe, will cause me to get a good spot. Look and wait for your deliverance. A little further on, that's a direct quote, page 41, 82 to 83, page 80, or sorry, page 80. He talks about Sarah, the wife of uh, Abraham, and he says, I wonder how many great things God is trying to do in your life. We're all just like Sarah. We just can't conceive of the blessing that God wants to bring into our life. We are not in agreement with God. So because we're not in agreement with God, we're missing out on his blessings. So start believing. God didn't make you to be average. God created you to excel. If you will start believing it and acting like it and talking like it and seeing yourself as more than a conqueror, you will know only financial prosperity and you will have a victorious life right now. Page is 82 to 83. Jesus says, and I quote, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this all must take place. It all must happen. But the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and there will be earthquakes in various places, and all these 
are but the beginning of birth pains. Jesus' teaching to the disciples is twofold. He says bad things are going to happen. Disasters are going to strike. But the end is not yet. So we find that as Jesus is approaching his disciples, trying to tell them what they can expect regarding the end of the world, these two swings, these extremes on either side are both not to be trusted and not to be believed. Jesus says bad things will happen, but just because bad things do happen, it doesn't necessarily mean that the end has come. What we can glean from this passage, looking very carefully at this, is that as the end approaches, this life that we're living, this world that we're residing in, will experience a continuous decline. A social decline. He makes the statement, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There are going to be wars. We will experience an environmental decline. He says you'll have famines and earthquakes in various places. Social decline, environmental decline. One thing not mentioned here in Matthew chapter 24, but in the complementary passage in Luke 21, another thing that Jesus mentions is plague or pestilence. You'll experience disease. You'll experience death. You'll experience wars. You will hear of rumors of wars. And you're going to see the environment, the world around you, deteriorating. None of this is new. Undoubtedly, I could take you to the newspaper and show you anything from the last 10 or 20 years, and you would say, yes, it's happening. But the reality is, is this has been happening ever since the first century. The first thing that Jesus says, if you look again very carefully, he says in verse 5, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. The first thing that Jesus says is, don't be alarmed that the end has come. There will be many antichrists of a form, okay? There will be many who will come claiming to be Jesus, and that is not necessarily a guarantee that the end has arrived. I googled it because I was just curious. You know, there are lots of people who have uh, mental, they're mentally unhealthy, they have some mental health issues who might claim to be Jesus. That's not who I'm talking about here. I'm talking about people who claimed to be Jesus, who were charming, charismatic, persuasive, and gathered a following. And my thought was, if I look into this and I research it, I'll probably find maybe, maybe 20 or 30 individuals over the last 2,000 years that claimed to be Jesus and got a significant following of individuals who believed them. Do you know what I discovered when I began to look into it? My estimates of 20 to 30 were very, very lowball. We're talking hundreds upon hundreds. Lots of people claimed to be Jesus. Lots of people succeeded in getting a following and I restricted my research to just 20 or more followers. We're talking a group of people, 20 strong, minimum, and we're, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of those. I gave you just a few examples. The first one, and this is of some significance to me because I ran into a fellow in uh, the early 2000s. We got to talking and uh, discovered he was a Christian. We were having coffee, and uh, we began to share a little bit about our Christian faith. I mentioned something about praying, a prayer request of some form, and uh, asked him if he had prayer requests, and, and he stopped me. He said, you don't have to actually pray. You could just call him. And at first, I was a bit confused. I was like, yeah, exactly, yeah. Like, prayer is like calling God. Exactly, I agree with you. And he said, no, 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 no. You can call him, like, on the phone. And I said, uh, okay, yeah, sure. What are, you, what are you saying? Yahweh ben Yahweh, imprisoned 
in the Florida State Penitentiary, you can call him and you can talk to him and share your requests with him. I was dumbfounded. Born, Yahweh ben Yahweh, born as Hulon Mitchell Jr. He was a black nationalist and a separatist. He renamed himself Yahweh ben Yahweh, which means, son of, which means God, son of God, or, or something like that. Um, he proclaimed himself to be God, and he had over 100 followers. In 1992, he was convicted of conspiracy to commit murder and attempted murder, and he was sentenced to 18 years in prison. He passed away in 2007, having never fulfilled any of the claims that he made about himself. It's not a very successful God, if you ask me. David Koresh, I'm sure you can all recall from the early 90s. Born Vernon Wayne Howell, he was the leader of a Branch Davidian religious sect located in Waco, Texas. I'm just hitting all those Texas boys today. I'm one of the good ones, okay? Just put your mind on <laughs> There seems to be a number of these guys from Texas. At any rate, um, David Koresh, Born Vernon Wayne Howell, Branch Davidian uh, religious sect, had a compound in Waco, Texas. I'm sure you're all familiar, those of you who are old enough to recall, uh, in 1993, a raid by the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Federal Agency resulted in the significant loss of life. The compound was burned to the ground. 54 adults and 21 children were found dead. There were a few survivors, and the stories that came out of that event were simply this. He claimed to be Jesus. He claimed to be God. He predicted the end of the world was coming. So when federal authorities showed up on their doorstep, all of his followers believed this was the end, as he had suggested. He engaged in a number of just awful, awful things with the women in his compound, the children in his compound, things that I won't bother to go into detail here. Jim Jones, another one. And I'm sure many of you may recall Jim Jones from the 70s. He's the founder of a group called the People's Temple, it started off as an offshoot of mainstream uh, Protestantism. It was a, a sect, a, a, a split off from Pentecostalism. Um, he claimed that he was the reincarnation of Jesus Akhenaten, who is a, an Egyptian pharaoh. Uh, he claimed he was the, also the reincarnation of Buddha, Lenin, and Stalin, as well as God, that he was God come in the flesh. He organized a mass murder-suicide. He took a number of people from California down to South America. They formed a compound down there when he suspected that uh, federal authorities were beginning to exert pressure or coming for them. His paranoia got the best of him, and he ordered all of his followers to commit suicide by drinking punch or Kool-Aid that was laced with cyanide. You may be familiar with the expression, stay away from the punch. That's where that comes from. Jim Jones. None of this is new. In Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, writing to the churches that he had planted in the province of Galatia, offered this warning regarding the Judaizers, individuals who are coming in saying salvation, uh, you know, trust in Jesus is a good thing, but you also have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Paul offers this warning regarding the false brothers. False brothers have been secretly brought in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ in order to enslave us. And Paul goes further and he says in verse 5, to them, we did not yield in submission, not even for a moment, 
in order that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. We are called to recognize the reality of false prophets claiming falsehoods and setting themselves up as Jesus Christ. We as a church are called to recognize it and to oppose it. They say, okay, pastor, that's all well and good. What about some of these other things? Nation rising against nation. Yes, war also is going to be a present reality of our environment. It's quite shocking when you stop to think of it how many millions and even billions have died as a result of war. Perhaps the greatest conflict in the last 2,000 years claimed the most lives. The Mongol War, the Mongol Empire, initially named as the Greater Mongol State in the 13th and 14th centuries, experienced a bloody civil war. An estimated 60 million people died. Of course, you can all recall World War I, 65 million people. World War II, 75 million people perished in World War II. But the biggest one of all that most of you are probably not familiar with is the Taiping Rebellion. This is also linked to a false prophet. The Taiping Rebellion was a widespread civil war in southern China. It took place from 1850 to 1864, led by a false prophet, a guy setting himself up to be the Christ, by the name of Hong Kiguanhe. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Over 100 million lost their lives. A hundred million. There will be false prophets who will come in my name and they will lead many astray. They will lead many astray. To say that you find yourself in a group with lots of people is no comfort and no assurance. Jesus himself says many will be deceived. The greatest war of all time was a war led by a false prophet. I've mentioned to you just a couple of the false prophets, the ones that are more well-known to us. Hundreds and hundreds died as a result of their influence. There is no safety in numbers, and there is no substitute for the real, living Jesus Christ. The other thing we can experience is natural disasters. In fact... This recent study released not too long ago by Tom Parsons, who is a geologist with the United States Geological Survey Service, made this statement, quote, We have recently experienced a period that has had one of the highest rates of earthquakes ever recorded. Now, our understanding of earthquakes and our recording of seismological activity only goes back about 300 years. And only in the last 50 to 60 years have we actually been able to record the seismic activity all around the world. So we don't actually have a comprehensive amount of data going back all the way to when Christ made this prophecy. But this much has been said. There is an uptick. There is an increase in Earthquakes and seismological disasters. In addition to earthquakes, they give rise to a number of other natural disasters, hydrological events, hydrological catastrophes. I'm speaking of cyclones, hurricanes, tornadoes, and of course, tsunamis. You'll all recall in 2011, the tsunami that, was, that rose up as a result of an earthquake just off of the shore of Japan. I remember coming home from care group one night and somebody from my care group texting me and saying, turn on the TV and see what's happening. And I turned it on and I remember turning on the TV and there was a guy on a moped, a little scooter, flooring it for all his life. And the helicopter was flying overhead observing all of this as this giant, at least 10-foot wall of water was just barreling down on him. And of course, he didn't make it. 
unbelievable destruction, unbelievable heartache and devastation. We see these things on the news. Jesus clearly predicted that they would come. And so now we turn back to fellows like Harold Camping and Joel Osteen and we ask, is this the end? Or for those poor and fortunate souls who are caught in war, caught in conflict, caught in natural disasters, was this the best life that they could hope for? Both are false to what Jesus says here. You say, preacher, I hear everything you're saying. But Jesus makes the statement here in verse 8, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. Doesn't that mean on some level that when we see these things happening, we know that sort of like an hourglass that's been tipped over, time is ticking, that there is a countdown that has been unleashed because of this metaphor of the birth pains, should we not expect that this will get worse and worse and worse until the end arrives? That is a popular interpretation. Jesus makes the statement, all these things are the beginning of birth pains. And as we consider the analogy of a woman going into labor, when she has that first contraction, you know that it's going to happen. And of course, the contractions at first will start very, very far apart. And then as she gets closer and closer to delivery, those contractions will start to get closer and closer together. And so many have looked at this analogy that Jesus offers here, and they will say what Christ is saying is that we can experience these things and we can experience an increase of these things as we get closer to the end. That is one interpretation. That is one interpretation. And I want to be fair that if you were to actually go out and do the research and look at particularly seismological evidence, we don't have very good evidence for floods or or, uh, hurricanes or anything of that nature, but if you were to look at the earthquake records for the last 200 years, there seems to be a correlation there. But when we look at this expression here in Matthew 24, we have to ask ourselves the question, what does this expression mean as Jesus is using it? What would he have understood it to mean? And do we see other instances of it being utilized within the rest of the scriptures? In order to actually arrive at a crystal clear understanding of this expression, we've got to, use, we've got to look at how it's been employed elsewhere. It's been employed on a number of different occasions. There are a handful of references in the Old Testament and one additional reference in the New Testament that employs this metaphor, the metaphor of the birth pains, that are actually end-of-the-world apocalyptic type of prophecies. If you have a pen, you might want to jot these down. We don't have the time to really flip through and consider them all in detail. I'm not going to give you the context or really you know, pick apart the passage for you. I'm just going to read you the passage, and I'm going to share with you the conclusion we can draw from the way that the author uses this birth pain analogy within the passage. First one, if you've got a note, if you've got a piece of paper, bulletin, pen, write this down. Isaiah 13, verses 6 to 9, reads, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Destruction from the Almighty has come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. Verse 8, they will be dismayed Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. Now, there's the birth pang analogy utilized in a prophecy in Isaiah talking about the end of the world. If you consider it carefully, it says that at the end, people will be seized in anguish. They will be grasped with pain like a woman in labor. 
From that, all we can conclude in that particular passage is that the birth pang analogy is being used to say that there will be sudden, sharp pain that comes. Let's look at another passage. Also, Isaiah 26, verses 13 to 21. I'm just going to give you uh, verses 14 to 17. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction. You've wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pains when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord." Now again, you see that, me- that reference to the birth pangs. It's, it's used as an analogy there to describe the pain that they're experiencing. And again, it's not necessarily a reference to time. It's not necessarily a time indicator. It's a reference to the sharpness and the severity of the anguish that is being experienced by the people who have these events happen to them. Consider another one. This one from Jeremiah chapter 4. And you, O desolate one, and that's an interesting expression that we'll consider later on in this passage, the abomination of desolation. And you, O desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, the anguish as of one giving birth to her first child. The cry of the daughter of Zion, gasping for breath, stretching out her hands, saying, Woe is me, I am fainting before murderers. In that particular passage, the expression is being used prophetically to say that when Israel has been attacked by people, when, when outside invaders have come in and they've broken up the city and they're dragging the Jews off into captivity, they cry out in agony, they scream in pain, similar to what you'd expect from a woman who's in labor. That's what the passage is saying. Are you noticing a recurring theme here? It's not necessarily a time indicator. Nowhere is it saying that when you experience these birth pains, death to death to death to death, this is going to happen. It's just simply describing that you will be in agony and pain when these things do happen. There is a New Testament reference. Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 to 3. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security or health and wealth and prosperity, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Again, a reference to the labor pains. In all of these references, this is the analogy we get. It is sudden, unexpected, number one. And number two, It hurts. In fact, the emphasis from the scripture seems to be on the pain that is being experienced as on a level of pain that women experience when they're they're giving birth, when they're delivering. What can we conclude about this statement then? Is Jesus saying that once we experience these things, a clock is ticking down? A person made a statement to me one time. We were at a prophecy conference and he grabbed my arm and he said, Josh, 
we're closer than we've ever been before. You're laughing. If you think about it, that statement is always true. It doesn't necessarily mean that you've seen something or you've had some grand thing unveiled and it's, you know, it's imminent, you know. That's sort of the idea that's conveyed. As time progresses, we are always getting closer to the return of our Lord. Amen? And yet, as we see all of these phenomena taking place, we cannot necessarily point at any one of them and say, this is the harbinger of the end. This is when the hourglass has been turned over and now the sand is ticking through and we're going to see this contraction getting sharper and closer together and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. We can't actually calculate any kind of a time reference. Many use that verse to say exactly that, but that actually goes against the thrust of what Jesus plainly does say. Look back with me. Verse 6. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. The statement is, this is necessary. This has to happen. Very next statement, but the end is not yet. Dear brothers and sisters, Jesus' statement here, he says, look, all these things are going to happen. It's going to be bad. All of these things are just the beginning of a birth pain. All of these are just the beginning of incredible more pain that is coming. Doesn't necessarily mean that the observance of any of these natural disasters has suddenly tipped over an hour class and has unleashed a ticking time clock from which we know that the end is imminent. At the same time, having said that, that that is not Jesus' meaning in this passage, we're closer than we've ever been before. Fair enough statement. But I should never use that statement, nor should anyone else ever use that statement, to instill fear in you. Look at what Jesus says. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. It's an interesting construction in the Greek. The command comes in the first, ver- in the first word there. It's a verb, see to it, look to it, make sure. It's an active verb. You need to take actions to do something. What is it that you're supposed to do? Not be alarmed. The verb for be alarmed is passive. It's not something that we do. It's just something that happens to us. We are easily scared. It's an emotion that we may not necessarily have any control over. Something happens, it terrifies us. You don't stop and think to yourself, hmm, perhaps now is a good time for me to be afraid. None of us ever has to contemplate whether or not we're going to be afraid. When something terrifying happens, the natural reaction God-given, God-ordained is that we will be afraid. I recall watching a few years ago when that tsunami was sweeping across Japan. I'm watching it live on TV thinking to myself, how utterly terrified I was. I was in no danger. I just am watching the poor plight of these people running for their lives, and I'm just filled with fear because I recognize I cannot actually keep myself safe. I cannot protect myself. I give it my best effort. I've got a lock on the front door of my house. I I lock the windows. 
I live in, I have chosen to live in a city that is governed by law, that is patrolled by police officers. And yes, somebody will mention to me after the sermon, so I'm going to go ahead and say it now. Scientific studies have been done that this is one of the safest places earthquake-related in all of the world. I didn't actually choose to live here because of that fact. Nevertheless, it's true, okay? Yes, we live in a safe town. Yes, I have a good lock on my front door. And yet, at the end of the day, I know when I watch this thing on TV, I can't keep myself safe or my family. I can't. The fear comes of its own. I don't have to cause myself to be afraid. It's there. And Jesus' exhortation to us is, actively see to it that you not allow yourself to be afraid. My daughter sometimes has nightmares in the middle of the night. All of you who have had children, you'll have this experience. It's a wonderful experience. If you haven't had children, you will soon have this experience where it's about 2 a.m. You're right there in that sweet spot, REM sleep. You need that to be a functioning, productive, normal person in the morning. And that's the moment that your child comes to you and wakes you up. And you're like, "Eh, what, what? He says, Daddy, I had a bad dream. I'm afraid. Can I sleep with you? In which case, I'm like halfway already back to sleep at this point. I'm like, hey, sorry, I go back to sleep, you know. Not totally coherent. Dad, I'm afraid. It's fine, it's fine. There's nothing to be afraid of. Just go back to bed. In that moment, do you want to know honestly what my motivation is? I want to go back to sleep. Is my daughter terrified? Absolutely. Is it really the call of my heart in that moment? Is it the passion of my life to say, I'm going to be there like a knight in shining armor. I'm going to grab the flashlight and take all of downstairs and shine the light all around and say, look, there's nothing to be afraid of. No, because that would mean I have to get out of bed. I'm sleepy. I'm tired. I want to go back to sleep. When I say to my daughter, don't be afraid, you know what it is? It's an empty platitude. What I really mean is don't bother me. I confess this freely to you. Don't judge me. You've all been there, okay? (laughs) Jesus says, see to it that you're not afraid. Is he giving us a false platitude? No. Is, Is God just trying to get us off his back so he can go back to bed? No. Not even close. The disciples ask this question, tell us when are these things going to be? And Jesus shares with them a message that has got no other reasonable outcome but this, to strike fear and terror deep into their hearts. Before he gets into any of those details, he makes this statement, see to it that you are not afraid. This is going to shock some of you. Do you want to know what the most common command in the whole Bible is, Old Testament and New Testament? There are a couple of obvious culprits. You're going to probably say, to believe, to have faith. There are lots of references to those. You'll probably suggest to love, to love our fellow neighbor, to have a lot of love for them. And you're right, there are lots of references for those. In fact, those are the second two. But do you know what number one is? The number one command given in all the scriptures that is repeated way above and beyond more than the command to love or the command to believe and have faith is the command not to be afraid. 
This is not for our father an empty platitude where he is saying, get off my back, I want to go back to sleep, don't worry, there's nothing to be afraid of. He is coming to us in that moment and he is saying, look, I've told you all of these things, I've made you aware of them all ahead of time, I want you to know this is going to happen and because I have told you beforehand that it will happen, you know that the father is in total control. You will be afraid, it will come naturally of its own accord, but remind yourself of the God in heaven who is in total control, who has authority over everything, and remind yourself of this. When he says, don't be afraid, it's not like us trying to put our kids back to sleep. It's a promise from him that he is with us, walking through it together with us. This is not Jesus saying, hey, it's the end of the world. I got better things to do. This is Jesus saying, I know that you're going to be afraid. Don't be. I'm right there with you. You say, Pastor, it doesn't actually say that in the text. It does, not in this one. But in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything, which would include this teaching here. Don't be afraid when the terror comes. To reinforce that, he gives this final promise in Matthew 28. I am always with you. Just for today? No, no, no. Because we would assume that. I'm with you, Olive. Go back to bed. You know, He's just making some empty platitude. He says, I'm with you even to the end of the age. So what should we do to deal with our fears? Interestingly enough, sing to the Lord. I asked this, scripture, this question of the Bible. I said, what would the scriptures have me to do in this moment? As I was reading and researching, the verse that just sort of seemed to jump out at me was from Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I don't know how familiar you are with Psalm 46. As I was thinking about what assurances I could offer to you as a church to know that you don't need to be afraid. As I looked at a lot of different cross-references and as I prayed about it, that psalm just kept popping up in every possible conceivable circumstance. It's an interesting psalm. You'll find that the psalmist wrote it to exalt the glory of God and to remind the people of Israel that in the midst of social instability, when nations were coming to attack Israel, they could trust in God. When there was climactic environmental instability, the psalmist in Psalm 46 highlights those things and says you can still trust God. In fact, the title for Psalm 46, to the chief musician, a psalm of the songs of Korah, a song for Alamoth. Do you know what that word Alamoth means? It's translated from the Hebrew into the Septuagint, hidden things. A song for you to sing of the hidden things. The things you don't know are coming. The things that you can't anticipate. And of course, Martin Luther used this psalm when he wrote a complimentary hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I think he captures the essence of it. Whatever comes against us, whatever may happen, 
whatever disasters, whatever wars, whatever calamities we face, we know that our God is a mighty tower, that in him we have safety and we will always have his ultimate deliverance. Maybe not in this life, but he has promised one day to rescue all of his people. Psalm 46 concludes like this, verse 8, come and behold the works of our God. Verses 9 and 10 say, he makes wars to cease. He, brings, he breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns all the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted in this earth. So First Baptist Church, as we consider the end of the world, it is a moment to be terrified, but see to it that you are not. And how, pray tell, do we do that? Be still and know that God is God. Father, we come to you this morning and we just lift high your name. And we say, Lord, you are our hope. You are our, our firm foundation. You are our mighty tower that we run to. Father, when we are afraid, we want to run, run, run. Our first instinct is to always run. And yet the call of Psalm 46 is that we would sing. That rather than running, we would take our fear and we would come into your presence. We would be still and we would exalt you and sing a song of the hidden things, knowing that you are our God. Lord, help us to always be still, particularly as we encounter uncertain and dark days. Help us, Father, to know that you are God and you are in control. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.